0: I'm glad you could join me for some great seafood. Me too. Wait, why are you dressed in fishing gear? You said we were going out to catch great seafood, right? Yes, to Popeyes. Do you even know how to fish? No, I thought you did. Oh yeah, I could catch pretty good seafood at Popeyes. Let's go. Let Popeyes do the fishing while you enjoy our delicious signature seafood. Get Popeyes flounder fish sandwich or shrimp tackle box before they're gone. Limited time at participating U.S. restaurants.
1: Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. Our guest on this episode, Cody Keenan, had a front row seat to history, serving as President Barack Obama's
2: chief White House speechwriter and post-presidential collaborator. Cody has written a spellbinding account of what he considers to be the 10 most dramatic days of the Obama presidency. The book is a New York Times bestseller, and it's called Grace, Grace. President Obama, and 10 Days in the Battle for America. Cody, we thank you so much for joining us.
0: Hi, Laura. Hi, Jan. Thanks for having me on.
2: We have always been fascinated by presidential speech writing, so there's a lot we would like to ask you. But beginning with the basics, what made you decide to write this book?
0: Well, a couple things. The, you know, It's just a story that demanded to be told. The, the sheer magnitude of all of these events that happened in just one 10-day stretch um, when I was telling friends, I was writing this book, when I was telling the president, I was writing this book, you know, people remembered all these things happened, but not necessarily in the same week we had the white supremacist slaughter in Charleston. Um, we were working on, we were preparing for two Supreme court cases that would decide whether or not millions of people got to keep their health insurance, whether or not millions of people got to marry who they loved or not. And all this time, we're also deciding whether or not to write a eulogy for president Obama to go deliver in Charleston, um, but Beyond that, it's also what all these events meant. You know, they, Each one of them spoke to whether or not we actually believe that all of us are created equal and what we're willing to do to make sure that's true.
1: How would the speech writing process work for the two of you if you had time to write a speech like you would for the State of the Union versus if you had all of these things happening at once like you did during the 10-day period you write about in the book?
0: It's a good question. You know, Ideally, you have a bunch of time to write a speech. Ideally, you'd sit down with the president beforehand and go spend a couple of days working on it uh, and passing drafts back and forth. That rarely happened in practice, especially in, in these 10 days. We had uh, all of the, the speeches he would just go give anyway, along with we had to prepare all sorts of different speeches for the Supreme Court rulings, uh, because we would find out how the Supreme Court ruled at the same time as everybody else did, and you don't want to keep the country waiting for six hours. So we prepared speeches for, you know, what would happen if uh, the Supreme Court knocked down Obamacare and millions of people had to scramble. We had to write a speech for if the Supreme Court didn't find a right to marriage equality and a bunch of our friends and colleagues weren't allowed to marry who they loved. Uh, and in addition to all that, I was really struggling with with writing a eulogy for Charleston and neither President Obama nor I wanted to do it because uh, we'd already done a whole bunch of eulogies after mass shootings and it, it just didn't seem to be pushing the needle at all.
2: So how did that eulogy come together after the mass shooting in Charleston?
0: He really didn't want to give it. Um, and, and neither did I. And this this goes back to a few years earlier when the the Senate uh, blocked a vote on background checks. And, you know, the president was about as angry and cynical as I've ever seen him. And he said, you know, if if this was after Newtown, where 20 little kids were murdered in their classrooms, along with six of the teachers who died trying to protect them, the president said, if if we've decided as a country that we're not going to do anything about this, then I don't want to keep speaking after this happens. What changed it in the events of the book was the the families in Charleston, two days after uh, this killer took their parents and their children and their loved ones away. One by one, they went to the arraignment and they forgave the killer. And it was that extraordinary act of grace that sort of pushed the president over the top and said, you know what? I, I do want to go down there and speak after all. And, he said this before publicly too. That he just didn't give me much to go on. He said, "You know, let's talk about racism. Let's talk about guns. Let's talk about the Confederate flag. But let's wrap it all up in grace." And I just kind of said, "Oh, oh, is that all?" um <laughs> And so I, I, I really struggled putting it together, and, and finally gave it to him um, the evening before, which is pretty late. And you know, I'd worked on it for three days and gave it to him and went home. And he called me back to the White House that night uh, around eleven p.m. and in three hours, he'd he'd rewritten the back of it longhand, um, which was pretty extraordinary to see. And and so, you know, I, I worked on it throughout the rest of the night and we we kept making edits on the helicopter and on the plane. And so that one just kind of came together um relatively quickly on his end, but but it was a it was a long struggle on mine.
1: Another thing I thought was really interesting in reading the book was about a State of the Union speech that you had prepared over the holidays, I believe it was, and that he thought was great. He called you over to say, hey, this is this is great. But I think that the tone of it is a little too up. Can you explain a little bit a little bit about what happened after he called you there and what he really wanted to change? Because even though the message was great, he wanted the delivery to be a little bit different.
0: Yeah. It's, you know, the state of the union addresses where good speech writing usually goes to die. Uh, it's, it's a laundry list every time, <laughs> yeah. even though we'd sit down before each one and say, okay, this is the one that's going to be different. You know, we're going we're gonna to write about one issue. We're going to make it sing. Uh, and inertia kind of makes that impossible. So I had, I had, you know, ruined my third straight Christmas writing the state of the union address that I actually did believe was the best uh, one yet. And but it still included everything, um, and so I, I gave it to him about a week out. He called me up to talk about it. And he said, "Listen, this—I agree with you. This is the best. This is the best we've ever been in eight days out. But we have eight days to go, so we can make it better." And it, it wasn't that the tone was off. We were actually going for the the most optimistic one yet. But he said, uh, "You know, it's very dense. Every every word says something. Every sentence means something. So what I want you to do is." I, you know, the whole speech is at a 10. I need some of it at, you know, five, seven, six. Um, and then he asked, do you ever listen to Miles Davis? And I said, no, not really. And he said, well, the thing about Miles Davis is it's the notes you don't play. That's what made him so good. It's the silences. It's the spaces between because that, that says something, too. So I want you to go home tonight and pour yourself a drink and listen to Miles Davis. Don't do any work. But when you come back here tomorrow, uh, go back through the speech and find me some silences.
1: I imagine that must've been so difficult for you as a speechwriter when all you're trying to do really is fill up those silences. Was that really, exactly. Was that really unnatural for you or did it, did it make sense?
0: No, it made perfect sense. It's just not a state of the union address. is just so different and you get, you get lost in the process of, uh, you know, any other speech, especially something like a eulogy, you know, where to put in not even just literal silences, but, but emotional moments, you know, pauses, breaths, um, both literal and figurative. And, but when you're writing the state of the address, you get so swept up in making sure everything is in there in a coherent way, uh, that even if you have 70 policy items in there, it still tells a story. And while you, while you're doing that, you can forget about emotional moments, lyrical moments. And, um, you know, after, after he gave me that instruction, I went back and, and found those and, you know, this was this was probably the only state of the union address where, you know, how there's a there's the the first lady's box with a whole bunch of uh, people in it. We call them real people. We met it as a compliment, as in they're not people who work in the White House and sort of everyday American heroes. And you, you wrap them into a speech. We we only focused on one that entire speech, a woman from Minneapolis who'd written the president a letter about her family and the economy, and it was beautiful. And. The speech almost entirely focused on her, which was a rarity. But but I added in a line about as I was telling her story with her husband um, after the president's directive, I added in a line saying they were young and in love in America. And it doesn't get any better than that. And so it it almost became sort of a Mellencamp song. Um, And that, you know, that's what he meant, too, by silences. You can still fill it with a nice line like that that doesn't necessarily Mean anything? It doesn't relate to any certain policy. And I remember people in the White House were saying, "You can cut this if you need space." And I said, "No, that's actually a nice line that I think people at home will understand and respond to and react to." Uh, and it was.
2: You write that it's hard to be a speechwriter for somebody if you don't spend a lot of time with them. So take us through that process with President Obama. How much time did you spend with him, and and how did you go about writing these speeches?
0: It's critical. You, you have to spend time with the person. If you get, I mean, you don't have to, but then it's not a great process. You have someone just going up and reading something that they've barely had any input into. Uh, whereas President Obama was the opposite. We'd sit down with him on the front end and talk to him for a long time about not just what you want to say, but why you want to say it. And he always viewed yeah. speech writing as a collaborative <laughs> endeavor. Um, he wanted, he just wanted, he didn't want something that was perfect. He wanted something he could work with and give back to us and, and keep molding and shaping. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why he was so good at it. Um, I've had other clients who don't really care to get involved in the process, and they're happy to just go out and read it. And he, You know, that can be fine, but there's usually something missing.
2: Our Nobody Told Me conversation continues as we help spread the word about our sponsor, Blissy. Blissey. Lissy, spelled B-L-I-S-S-Y, makes all kinds of products to help you get a great night's sleep. I've been sleeping on a Blissy Mulberry Silk pillowcase this past week, and it's made a wonderful difference in the quality of my sleep. Me too. Seriously, because silk is what's best for your hair and your skin. It reduces
1: frizz, tangles, and prevents breakage. That's because it keeps the moisture in your hair and keeps your skincare products and natural moisture on your skin, unlike cotton does. With the Blissy pillowcase, you can say goodbye to wrinkly skin in the morning and wake up with healthier and shinier hair you can be proud of. I love I love the way my skin looks and the way my hair feels after sleeping
2: on a Blissy pillowcase and I love the fact that Blissy's pillowcases regulate temperature keeping you cool at night. The entire pillow is cool to the touch. No more sweaty nights spent tossing and turning as you search for the cool side of your pillow. Blissy pillowcases are made of 100% mulberry silk, which is
1: naturally hypoallergenic, so you can sleep more comfortably without itching or rashes. And unlike other
2: silk pillowcases, Blissies are machine washable and durable. With the holidays just around the corner, why not give the gift of better sleep? And what better gift could you give? And Blissey products come in gift-ready packaging. Blissey is the 2021 Good Housekeeping winner for Best Bedding. So you can rest assured that you're giving a great gift. Everybody loves them. They have a ton
1: of different prints and colors, and they make great gifts because there's an option for literally anyone, even
2: kids. They have over 1 million raving fans, and you could be next. Try now, risk-free, for 60 nights at Blissey.com slash nobody and get an additional 30% off. That's B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com slash Nobody, and use code Nobody to get an additional 30% off. Your skin and hair will thank you.
1: Sleep better with Blissey and use code Nobody to get an additional 30% off at
2: blissy.com/nobody. And Blissy has set up a great web page for our listeners. So if you're looking for a better night's sleep for yourself or someone on your gift list, check out the wonderful products and fantastic deals at blissy.com/nobody.
1: It seems like with Obama, he liked to put more time and effort into working on and learning how to deliver these speeches that were positive. That he was almost superstitious about not wanting to work too hard on things that had a negative message. During the time you worked together,
0: um, yes and no. There were there were plenty of times when he you know wanted to throw the flag on on Washington and on politics in general. But it, it's it's so easy to just be cynical and be negative and say that everything is broken and terrible, but mm-hmm. but that leaves the second part of the the question off, which is what are you going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? And a lot of a lot of our speech writing together was aimed at not just identifying problems, but convincing people that they have agency, that working through this democracy, you actually can change things for the better. And it's just it's just a more it it, it ends up working better that way than just saying everything is broken and terrible. uh, Therefore, either vote for me or don't vote for the other guy. And we're living through a lot of politics like that right now. And it lends to this sense that everything is broken and nobody cares and everybody's in it for themselves. And that's not entirely always true. I mean, there really are all sorts of good people constantly working to make things better. And by diminishing that, um, we all do ourselves a disservice.
1: I should have phrased that a little differently. I loved it when you mentioned that he had given you back a speech and said, hey, didn't need to use this one like that kind of a a playful tone that it seems you guys had had developed a good rapport over the years that, you know, kind of you guys kind of got each other.
0: Yeah, we did. And then that's I mean, that's something else that's missing in politics today is it is uh, joy and fun because it can be Um you know, he that was kind of his way of saying, thanks for working 12 hours on this speech. Fortunately, we didn't need it. That was that was a speech for if the Supreme Court had struck down Obamacare, uh, which was something we were all anxious about, not because, you know, the media would have painted it as a loss for Barack Obama, but because millions of people would suddenly have to scramble to figure out what they're going to do if they get sick or hurt. And so it was a nice moment of joy between him and me and my team that, that uh, thank God we didn't have to use this speech.
2: And how many people would be actually working on a speech at any given time? Because when you look at the president's schedule, some days he's at, you know, five or six different events, so calling for different remarks. So how many people are actually on a presidential speech writing team and and working on a speech at any given time?
0: I had a team of eight, but it was usually um, usually fewer than that in practice because the two wrote for the first lady exclusively two wrote on national security and then the other four of us wrote on everything else so but we didn't view speech writing as literally collaborative in that we wouldn't sit around a computer together that just made it take longer each each speechwriter would be in charge of one speech but then we'd go through each other's work and make it better once the draft was done before we'd even pass it to the president uh and then even then on on each draft you have you know really smart policy minds you have fact checkers you have uh, lawyers making sure everything's kosher. You know, by the time a speech went to the president, a few dozen people would have weighed in on it.
1: What would happen if there really was just some crazy, awful thing that happened and you had just, you know, 10, 20 minutes that you needed to, to write remarks? What did you do? Did he really have to write the whole thing or how did that work?
0: No, that in, in some ways, you know, as awful as those moments were, they were clarifying because it, it, it gives you, you don't have time to think. You just sit down and write what you know and write what's true and give it to him as quickly as you can. And um, th- that could be clarifying. It could actually make the process easier and there'd be fewer cooks in the kitchen. Um, he'd often be in a briefing if, if something truly bad had happened. So I would just have 20, 30 minutes to just bang out one page of remarks for him to for him to read. And I'd take it up pretty much right as his briefing was ending. He'd go through it, make a couple edits, and we were we were off to the podium.
2: How did you react when you would see pundits on TV saying, "Now here's what President Obama needs to say, and here's what he ought to be saying"?
0: I would consistently ignore it. I mean, ah. It's and I've, I have people asking me for that all the time now. They'll say, "Can you come on TV and talk, what what does Joe Biden have to say?" And I don't like doing that because it's it's. It's not fair to his speechwriter. I never enjoyed it when people said it to me, um, and I'm good friends with Joe Biden's speechwriter. You know, if he ever wants help or advice, he knows where to find me via text. Um, he doesn't need to turn on MSNBC to see what I have to say about it.
1: You had a relationship with Obama that started, um, I believe it was was it 14 years before he left office. So, can you tell us how that all came about and why he decided to choose you when both of you were. Somewhat you know, inexperienced and new to the field of of politics at that certainly at that level,
0: yeah, <clears throat> I ended up working for him for fourteen years total. um he he already, he had one speechwriter, John Favreau, by the time they picked me up to join the team in early two thousand and seven. Um, and he and John had connected uh, they they first met at the two thousand and four convention uh, and then he hired John to be his Senate speechwriter in late two thousand and four, I think. Um, and then John picked me up in early 2007 and I just, I was just stubborn enough to stick around. You know, I, I stayed through all eight years of the white house and, uh, then I stayed with the president for four years after the white house, but we just, it's, we had a shared worldview. Um, we looked at things the same way we had, we had a a similar vision of democracy. And even though, you know, on the outside, it's not just that we, we look completely different, um, and come from different parts of uh, Chicago. And, you know, he had a, a whole interesting upbringing before that, but, but we looked at things the same way and you can really, I try to tell, you know, all my speeches, speech now, both who I teach at Northwestern university and who work with me at a company called Fenway that, you know, we can write for anybody, as long as you find something to share in common. Um, and leaving him was difficult, but I, I, I wanted to write this book and I didn't feel comfortable, uh, doing it while I was on his payroll.
2: Tell us more about how you wrote the book, because in, in reading the book, I read that you could not take your notes with you as as a White House speechwriter. So how did you reconstruct that stuff?
0: I, I had some I, I had copies of things, um, but, but yeah, everything everything we created in the White House goes to the National Archives. But over the years, I had uh, emailed myself notes, you know, things things that happened in meetings and um, and just sort of put together, put it together as true as I could. You know, fortunately, I still had access to him, so I interviewed him quite a bit for the book. I interviewed everybody else uh, who's in the book. My wife has a steel trap memory, so she was very helpful. But um, putting it back together it took a while. Uh, but but it was also something I've been playing with in my head for a long time. So, you know, I, a lot of the a lot of the files I pulled out were just actually up there in the old brain.
1: I want to go back to this idea of eulogies and how. Difficult they were to decide whether or not to even, you know, write a a eulogy because so many had had to be given over the years. I think that at a very basic level, all of us really struggle with what to say to somebody, whether it's a friend or a family member, if they've lost somebody. um, And we'll say our thoughts and prayers are with you, and that never seems sufficient. And, you know, they're maybe rolling their eyes, but at the same time, it's hard to figure out what exactly to say. So, For the rest of us who are out here who aren't writing for the president, but who are just trying to show kindness and compassion, what can we say to get our message across?
0: Sure. It's, you know, I I think the first thing to think about if you're asked to give a eulogy is what a tremendous honor that is. You know, you've been asked to put the final word on somebody's life, and that's that's a really special thing that somebody's asked you to do that. Um, I also have never believed that eulogies have to be sad, you know, and, and keep in mind I've written ones for the most tragic circumstances imaginable. Uh, it, it was hard to avoid Newtown being sad. It had, by the time he gave it the eulogy after Newtown, it had only been 48 hours and people are still fully in shock. If you're, if you're eulogizing one person like Reverend Pinkney, uh, the, who's, who's the, the, the person, the president eulogized at the end of this book, focus on, you know, their life wasn't sad. Uh, so, so what you say about their life doesn't have to be either, you know, the, the way, the way he was uh, murdered is, is, is as terrible as it gets, but his life was not sad. And when you approach a eulogy, you know, you always, you speak to the people kind of in the front rows first, whether you're in a church or a room or outside or wherever, because they're the people who've lost the most. And then you, you kind of gradually widen the circle to, until you get to the broader community, when you're the president, you know that that broader community includes a whole battery of lenses in the back of the room that's broadcasting to the world. And uh, thoughts and prayers were never enough. What what he wanted to do in those situations was actually talk to people about what are our obligations now that this person's gone. You know, what are our responsibilities to carry on in, in this person's stead? And so, those were always some of the, the the better parts of his eulogies and the better parts of any of his rhetoric when he could speak to what is supposed to carry us forward now what are we supposed to do that's when his moral imagination really kicked in
2: this episode is sponsored by ritual we're glad to have you as part of our nobody Told Me family of listeners and we want to tell you about rituals essential protein products as you may know Protein powders can be intimidating. But the fact is that we all need
1: protein. It's not just about muscles. Protein helps support bone health and so much more. And as we go through life, our protein needs change. So it's important to choose a mix for different life stages.
2: Ritual's Essential Protein is a delicious protein plant-based protein powder with three distinct formulas designed to meet the body's changing protein needs during various life stages. There's Daily Shake 18+, Daily Shake 50+, and Daily Shake Pregnancy and Postpartum.
1: Each of these three thoughtful formulas contains 20 grams of pea protein per serving. Rituals Essential Protein Powder is a good foundation for your health that's easy to incorporate
2: into your daily rituals. I just add water, shake, and sip, and I love the great taste. So do I and we think you will too. It's a delicious handcrafted vanilla flavor from sustainably harvested Madagascar vanilla bean extract. There's no added sugar or sugar alcohols. It's soy-free, gluten-free, and non-GMO.
1: We've used Ritual's products for several years and we're big fans of their multivitamin and gut health products as well. We really appreciate that with Ritual's one-of-a-kind, visible supply chain, you know the what, how, and why of every labeled ingredient Ritual offers a super flexible subscription service with free shipping for subscribers. Ready to shake up your protein ritual? Our nobody told me listeners get 10% off during your first
2: three months at ritual.com NTM ritual even offers a money back guarantee. If you're not 100% in love, visit ritual.com NTM today for 10% off your first three months. Again, that's ritual.com NTM for 10% off your first three months. How did you see President Obama evolve over the years as a speaker? Because he he's just tremendous.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and he put a lot of work into it too. You know, there's there's no such thing as a born speaker. Uh, I don't think I'm giving anything away to to say that early in his political career, before anybody even knew who he was, he paid for coaching. Uh, he practiced. He had people kind of teach him how to develop his his uh, Rhetorical style and 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 the way he presents it himself. So he I, I don't know so I don't know that he changed in terms of the way he spoke. Um time and experience will change you. And, you know, I, I I don't think, for example, he would have sung Amazing Grace in the first year of his presidency. I think that's something that comes with time. Um, there's kind of this liberated fearlessness that comes with, you know, having survived all sorts of uh, mistakes, and, and you know, we'd like it as a plunging over Niagara Falls in a barrel and coming out fine the other end. And I think by the by the time he's in year seven of the presidency, he's got this sort of fearlessness about him that uh, pushed him to to take those risks and, and step up and say,
1: "Yeah." Take us back to the end of that ten day period that inspired the book, that inspired the title, and inspired the name of your daughter too. <laughs>
0: Yeah, he like I said, those, those, it was those families and, and that act of grace that that ultimately pushed the president into giving a eulogy. And when he when he rewrote the back half of it, he basically stopped at I had written the phrase "Amazing Grace" towards the end of page two, and he ran with that and built this structure, this kind of beautifully simple structure that I kicked myself for not thinking of for the back half of the speech using the lyrics of "Amazing Grace." And um, you know, he told me the morning of that if if it feels right, I might sing it, uh, and then he did. And a lot, a lot of things had to happen for that moment to get there. It's, it's the fact that that what those families did sort of changed the way the country walked that week rather than spiral into, let me put it this way, after a white supremacist murders nine black people in a black church and says he wants to start a race war. If we had had, say, a different president in office who would either excuse it or call it a false flag operation or actually work to kind of crack open the fissures in American society and turn us against each other. A lot of different things could happen that week. None of them good. Um, The fact that president Obama deployed his rhetoric the way he did, the fact that those families went on and did what they did. You suddenly saw, you know, Republican politicians in the South start changing their minds about the Confederate flag and and governors actually ordering it brought down and Strom Thurmond's son, it's just a segregationist who ran for president on a platform of segregation. His son came out and said it should come down over the, uh, state House in South Carolina and ultimately it did. You had um, the nation's biggest retailers said they'd stop selling Confederate flag merchandise. And so you know kind of the same way President Obama would talk about in the eulogy, maybe our eyes are open now uh, to 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 these things and so then he gets up and sings and and you know, none of this lasts forever. Progress is fragile, progress is fleeting but but for that week, um, the country sort of felt felt grace and it also required, you know, for, for us, at least those Supreme court victories to kind of make sure the president had an open heart, uh, and, and then stepped to the podium and sang. And so my daughter was similar. Um, you know, we, we, my wife and I moved to New York city just two months before the pandemic, obviously not knowing what was coming and found out she was pregnant with our first child two weeks before New York city shut down. And it was a scary time in New York. You know, There's a, there was a mobile morgue truck across the street from our apartment and tens of thousands of people died the first couple months. And we were just kind of hunkering down, protecting this baby. Um, and then as the year unfolded, you had the, the George Floyd protests throughout New York City all summer long. You had the contested election towards the end of the year. And through it all, you know, we had a we had a blessedly complication free pregnancy and our daughter uh, kicked every night at the same time. She was just this calm, reassuring presence that we didn't deserve. And, and so we named her Grace.
2: What do you hope readers take away from this book named grace?
0: You know, what I want people to take away from it is, is all of the, for all of the frustration and cynicism uh, that's around us all day long. And we're, we're fed a steady diet of both. Uh, we have agency. We are not powerless in this process. It's just, we're, we're constantly told that people are corrupt and everything's broken and we just have to live with it. And that's not true. You know, that, The the triumphs in the book, the progressive triumphs, were not the result of Barack Obama alone. It was the 100 year movement for universal health care and a 50 year movement for LGBTQ rights, and even those of us who worked in the White House for all 2,922 days, you know, we went home feeling all right about ourselves each day if we just moved the ball forward just a couple inches. And while that can be frustrating to people, it's it's all those inches that ultimately get you in the end zone and get you those big victories and so d- democracy can actually be this wonderful thing. It can be exciting. It can be, it, you can help millions and millions of people if you never give up. And I tell my students too, I just had class yesterday, um, that this is a worthy endeavor for your time and your energy. Going into politics is not something that you should be uh, opposed to, Even if, even if your parents might be, this is something you should throw yourself into because you will be able to make a difference. You will make new friends. Uh, You you can change this country's course. And it's absolutely worth your time and your passion and your joy.
1: I love that. Mm -hmm. Cody, at the end of each show, we ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So in your case, what did nobody tell you about the true power and impact of well-written and well-thought-out words that you learned during your time working with Obama that you didn't even know before you started working with him, even though you were a great speechwriter. And while the rest of us may not be the president, speechwriters would be helpful to our audience as they deliver their message on a much smaller stage.
0: Uh, Nobody told me I would have to write so many. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, you always imagine that people are out there listening. Nobody told me how many people would actually write in and write letters uh, saying that a speech changed their mind or that a policy changed their life. I, I may be getting it down with this book. I have I have one email address that's out there in the public domain and, and people have found it. And I wake up every morning to a bunch of new emails from strangers who've read this book. And, and some of the best are the ones that say, um, I was ready to give up and I read this book and now I'm gonna go knock on doors this weekend for a candidate. And I'm just sitting there like, wow, you know, that's, that's not why I wrote this book, but that's great. Um, I'm trying to think of a better answer for you guys too. There, are, there are a million things nobody told me.
2: Well, yeah, yeah, and and what is it nobody told you about? Just working so close to the center of of power.
0: Um. Nobody told me how stressful it would be, and nobody told me how rewarding it would be. Uh, nobody told me that I would meet my wife on the job. Nobody told me that I would make my best friends on the job. Um, it, uh, it, it, nobody told me I would end up in the white house. You know, it's just, it's something you dream about when you're a young political science major, but I, I, I have students ask me all the time, how do I get there? What do I have to do? And there's no checklist. You just have to show up and dive in. And that's one reason I wrote those words in the president's farewell address. Um, you show up, dive in and, and keep at it and your career will take you to, some really unexpected and extraordinary places. Um, nobody told me how it it would impact other people's lives. I, I did an event uh, on my book tour in Ridgefield, Connecticut, where I went to high school, and uh, the local state senator there found my email address, reached out, and said, "Hey, can I buy you a drink before your event?" And I said, "Sure." You know, a, a drink always shakes loose better stories. And he said, <laughs> "I ran." He said, "I ran for office because of you." And I said, "Okay, I'll bite." Why? He said it was the president's farewell address. Um, there was this paragraph in there that said, show up, dive in, you know, tie your shoelaces, knock on some doors, grab a clipboard and run for office. And I hoped people would do that when I wrote that paragraph. But he said, I was watching that speech in college. And then I grabbed a clipboard and I ran for office and I unseated somebody who had been a state senator for 22 years. And I'm in my third term. And I was like, that's crazy, man. Uh, you you imagine You hope that something like that will happen, but then you turn in the speech and you move on to the next one. Uh, So for somebody to tell me that he actually did as directed by his president and laced up his shoes and grabbed a clipboard was pretty amazing.
1: Wow. Your your words are so inspiring mm-hmm. to us. I know this this book is just such a total delight. And we want everybody to read it and and try and I mean maybe they'll be inspired to run for exactly. office to, yeah. to do something special. I'm sure they will. So how can they connect with you? How can they learn about the book? And yeah, yeah, on some, social, media, social the media, internet everywhere.
0: Yeah, it's it's Cody Keenan everywhere. Uh Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Cody Keenan.com. Uh the, the first big thrust of the tour is over which I'm partially grateful for because now I can spend a little bit more time with, with Gracie, my daughter. Um, but we're actually adding events all the time. And, you know, the, the, the most wonderful thing about a book tour is actually the events and getting to meet people and see people. I have another one tonight, um, here in Chicago and, uh, it's just been really, really fun. So, um, find me, reach out.
2: Well, Cody, it's been fun to talk with you, and, uh, and just interesting. I mean, my gosh, yeah, it
1: really is. I was really just struck by how it seems like Obama, who who Obama, just standing for every every president in the world. We think that that person is unattainable, is so different from all of us. It seemed like the two of you were kind of just like friends. You you know, he he seemed like a real person, and I found that to be really powerful.
0: Yeah, he's the same person when the cameras are off. He's just a little bit more profane when the cameras are <laughs> off. Um, but otherwise, he's the same guy. You know, we Sounds had, even uh, more likable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah. He does. You know, back, in, back in September, there was a wedding between two people who met working for the Obamas, and he was there. You know, He flew out to Los Angeles and came to the wedding, um, just another guest like the rest of us. You know, So he's. I joke with him that the, there are so many people who met Um, while working on his campaign or while working in his administration that he's now got dozens of little grandbabies running around the country.
2: Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Well, Cody, we thank you so much for joining us. And and again, Cody's new book is called Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America. And his website is CodyKeenan.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us.